Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. When you prepare to move on from the city of your birth, the place where you have made your adult life, every moment is filled with doubt. Emigration is an act of despair as much as hope. You spend your time cutting for sign, making sure the new track you're about to set out on is the right one. Thirty-five years ago, the week I am posting this, that was my situation. A newlywed, I was emigrating to London on the strength of my wife's passport, wedding largesse from family and friends, and two letters of introduction to editors at liberal publications. My wife was already in London, looking for a flat, and I was sitting immobile in her apartment at the corner of First Avenue and Second Street in Manhattan, amid suitcases and the detritus of departure. My left ankle was encased in a plaster cast. The day before I was supposed to fly out to meet her, I had gone for one last jog along the East River Promenade. I ran down Houston Street to the river, and I was full of good spirits, new life, a chance to start over at 35. That's a gift. Ahead, a pile of neatly raked leaves. I felt giddy as a five-year-old and ran straight for it. The leaves were covering a pothole about a foot and a half deep. My left leg went into it at jogging speed. My foot curled in and my ankle twisted over it. I lay on my back for a while, laughing at my stupidity and gasping in pain. After a few minutes, I remembered what city I was in and where I was. Lying like Gregor Samsa on my back, I was very likely to get squashed. Anyway, my departure was delayed for ten days, and I passed them finishing an article and watching TV. There was plenty of time for doubt to come into my head about this move. But then came the sign that I had taken the correct turning. WNBC's local six o'clock news started a series that week called Is God Punishing Us? 1985, like 2020, was a year of one disaster after another. AIDS deaths were up by more than 30%. Rock Hudson had just died of the disease. 20,000 people had just been buried in a mudslide following a volcanic eruption in Colombia. An earthquake had killed 10,000 people in Mexico City a few months earlier. Hurricane Gloria, the biggest in two decades, had just blown through town. The Ethiopian famine, the Japan airline crash that killed 500-plus people. Coincidence, WNBC wanted to know, or is God punishing us? That was not a question native New Yorkers were asking themselves, and I speak as a native, born in New York in the numerical middle of the American century. After my father's career took us to the Philadelphia suburbs when I was a boy, I had moved heaven and earth to get back to Manhattan. It was exactly ten years since I had returned to start a wildly unsuccessful career as an actor. I moved into an apartment on 12th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenues. Martin Scorsese had wrapped filming on Taxi Driver around the corner a few weeks before I arrived. That film is my neighborhood. The pimp with long hair who inspired the Harvey Keitel character in the film still oversaw business from a little stoop across the street from my building. The streetwalkers turned tricks in an abandoned Citroen 2CV in a rubble-strewn lot adjacent to my place. In 1975, my block was a place to be honorably poor. Manhattan intellectual life still had space for that concept then. People understood the risks of the artistic life. You could be possessed of greatness and still die penniless and unknown. 
there was respect given for choosing the harder path. And everything seemed possible. One college friend had just become the first woman hired to shoot local television news. Another had become the first woman sound technician in her union. They worked for WNBC. On days I wasn't driving a cab, I watched their stuff. Local TV news then was like reading a crusading tabloid newspaper. The news was hard. Chat was at a minimum. And that was because many of the reporters had started out at the city's tabloids. The names of the reporters won't mean much to most of you, but I'll say them anyway. Gabe Pressman, John Johnson, Victor Rizal. Victor Rizal was a commentator on Channel 11's news. Rizal had been a labor correspondent for the Daily Mirror, a New York tabloid by then defunct. He had been working on an expose of mafia influence in unions back in the 50s when a hitman blinded him by flinging acid in his face. Local TV news, my block, my dreams, represented a mid-century liberalism that now belongs to history, directly descended from the New Deal and cemented by the victory over fascism in World War II and given a final flourish in the civil rights era, which had not quite ended. 12th Street in 1975 was that rarest thing in America's physical and social geography, a place where different classes, ethnicities, and ages lived in an approximate sense of economic equality. Old, young, Puerto Rican, Irish, Jewish, black, Italian, from the suburbs, or whatever our place of origin, we were all roughly in the same economic boat at that moment, broke or nearly there. Only rarely in American history is there a time and place for this kind of social interchange. The armed forces in the Second World War was a place where social structures were broken down, except for African-American soldiers. The middle of the 70s, that often maligned decade in New York, was another. But now, ten years later, preparing to depart, 12th Street was closed to me. The prostitutes had been moved on, the 2CV carted away, and NYU built a dorm on the vacant lot. Over the years, I'd been forced further and further east by gentrification, deep into Alphabet City, or Loisida, as the neighborhood was called by its Hispanic population. I eventually landed on 7th Street between C and D. I wouldn't see urban destruction on that scale until my first reporting trip to Sarajevo, to the west, to the north, to the south, blocks of abandoned buildings hovered over rubble-filled lots where arson had done its worst. To the east was the Jacob Rees housing project. The nights were frequently punctuated by gunfire from its gloomy precincts. No one knew, and except for maybe the village voice, no one in the media cared. Arson, drugs, by 1985 it was an old story. The neighborhood suffered from not-so-benign neglect. Is God punishing us? Biblically, the better question would have been, is God abandoning us? Loisida had surely been abandoned by the city and the banks. And yet, the community remained. People squatted the abandoned buildings. Most of them were not crazy, just resourceful. Some homesteaded. My roommates had put sweat equity into saving a city-owned building and had earned a stake in its ownership. The street was alive. Halfway to Tompkins Square, the sheriff of 7th Street kept eternal watch on the block, seated on a folding bridge chair outside his church, a Spanish Pentecostal congregation. 
We nodded to each other, made pleasant conversation, exchanged gossip about crime. Weird things happened. One summer, the short, round bottle people turned up. They spoke with a Spanish accent I had never heard before and have never heard since. By day, they roamed the city collecting bottles for their deposit value, hundreds and hundreds of them. By night, they set up a little encampment, grilled their dinner, slept on the pavement. They opened up a fire hydrant to bathe. After a week or so, they began dragging back sheets of corrugated tin and began building a favela in a vacant lot. When the favela got too big, the police arrived, and the short, round bottle people disappeared. I don't tell these stories out of nostalgia. The city changes. That's a given. But why the city changes is forgotten, and something should be remembered. By 1985, things were changing rapidly. Money, some of it dirty, some of it just overflow from the first bout of Wall Street over-exuberance that would lead to regular crashes from the late 80s to the big one in 2008, began to filter into the neighborhood. Suddenly, some artists were getting rich. Pursuing a lonely vision in honorable poverty was for chumps. Fame, I want to live forever, was the motto of the newer kids coming to the city to make culture. One of the overnight rich artists, Julian Schnabel, opened a restaurant on Tompkins Square that I couldn't afford to eat in. That was another sign my string had run out in New York. One day, the sheriff of 7th Street was not there, and the next day a sign in Spanish telling folks he had passed away was placed on the bridge chair, along with a small bunch of flowers. Other floral tributes were soon added. No one took his place. My New York was disappearing by the hour. The news media as well. The New York Times was the first great cultural institution to be captured by what was not yet known as neoconservatism. A neoconservative is a liberal who has been mugged by reality was an early definition of the term. The Times seemed permanently mugged by what its top editor saw as the ingratitude on the part of beneficiaries of liberal programs, meaning beneficiaries of color. Somehow their neighborhoods burning down was their fault. Drug wars, all urban blight, was on them. Another harbinger of change had been Rupert Murdoch's purchase of the New York Post. The Post, which liked to claim it was the direct descendant of a daily journal started by Alexander Hamilton, had been the paradigm of what a liberal tabloid should be. Its sports pages had spawned a procession of Irish working-class writers who invented a whole school called New Journalism, elevating sports writing to a form of reporting on society. It was made readable by the sheer storytelling wit of its Irish-American practitioners, Jimmy Breslin, Pete Hamill. A game was never just a game. A boxing match was never just a boxing match. They were struggles on the front line of history with heroes and villains. Both men left the post after Murdoch took over. The other harbinger of change had been celebrity culture. Studio 54, Andy Warhol, all had their role. WNBC star Anchorman, Chuck Scarborough, was a cover boy for Warhol's Interview magazine. The values of celebrity, money, prettiness, vapidity started dominating television and print journalism. A wannabe real estate mogul from outer Queens, Donald Trump, rode to fame in this new era. This change had a huge impact on me personally. By now, I had given up on the theater and embarked on the work I'm still doing journalism. 
In those days, it was arts journalism, and I hoped to do for cultural coverage what Breslin and Hamill had done with sports reporting, use it as a wedge to help people understand the society in which they lived. I couldn't see where what I wanted to do fit into this landscape of the ephemeral. Now that money was involved, the news media began to pay attention. WNBC ran a longish item on gentrification in Alphabet City. At the center of it was an interview with the Ukrainian tailor who had a little shop on 7th between 1st and A. He had had some skirts and trousers for my wife. We knew his story. He had lost his family to the Nazis, then, after the war, had been deported east by the Soviets, escaped, made his way to America in the early 50s, and set up his little shop. He had stayed in the East Village when it had been abandoned to its fate. Now he was crying into the camera, holding a piece of paper, a letter informing him his lease was at an end and his rent was going up by thousands of dollars a month. He couldn't possibly pay it. He had nothing to live for but his work, and now it was being taken from him. The man had survived Hitler, Stalin, junkies, and firebugs, but he could not survive the force of Manhattan gentrification. The camera lingered on him to close the piece. When it switched back to the studio, Chuck Scarborough and his co-anchor, Pat Harper, ad-libbed a bit along the lines of, whenever there is progress, some people get hurt. Yes, the people who did not abandon the neighborhood when it went downhill and who fought to keep families and community together. That brief report made it clear to me that my liberal New York was finished. I was right to go. I didn't think the Big Apple would miss me. The city of my birth is a real place, but it is also an idea. Others, immigrants and colonists from the suburbs, would come and remake the city into their ideal image of it. I could have moved to Brooklyn, I suppose, and the next generation would, and gentrify it. But for me, Brooklyn was not the real city. That city was over. I watched Is God Punishing Us Those Final Nights in New York with increasing disbelief. My memory tells me Reverend Jerry Falwell was one of the experts Chuck Scarborough interviewed. Jimmy Swaggart may have been another noted theologian involved. His show was popular in New York not because the city's people are religious, they aren't, but because he was to televangelism what Mick Jagger was to rock and roll, the supreme entertainer. Swaggart had yet to be found consorting with a hooker in New Orleans. Thirty-five gray Novembers in London later. I have no regrets about leaving. And, by the way, if you're wondering, the answer to the question, is God punishing us, was maybe, and the series won an Emmy. And that's all for the FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Pay a visit, and while you're there, make a donation, please, to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.